This week's trending hashtag, Tulsi didn't kill herself. Yes, this is where we are in the 2020 presidential race. Uh, I guess we should welcome everybody to This Week in Common Sense for the last full week of January 2020. On this podcast, Paul Jacob reviews the big stories of the week that appear in thisiscommonsense.com. Okay, we have had a number of stories this week. Paul's been very busy. Let's see if he remembers any of them. Paul? You know, if, if things are happening uh, so fast, it is hard to kind of remember, and, and we're getting old, but I do remember them. Um, we, we learned on Monday that the gun safety laws, the politicians, potentates, whatever we want to call them in Virginia, are, are pushing through the legislature, are designed to protect people from not guns, but speech. Because one of the laws being pushed uh, basically says that if you say things on social media that might be viewed as, as threatening, even if it's not a clear threat, hey, I'm going to hurt you, can be reported and can be acted on uh, by the government. And, and of course, you would look at that and you would think, now, wait a second. Anytime you're saying that if someone says something, there should be some police action of the government, you are on a very slippery slope. But this particular slope, ooh, it's way up high because it's only dealing with a certain high caliber of person. Who is it? Who is it that's going to be protected from being threatened online? Oh, it is the governor and the governor-elect and the lieutenant governor and the lieutenant governor-elect and the attorney general and members of the General Assembly and justices of the Supreme Court. In other words, the legislature, as they're trying to take away our gun rights, are also trying to create a system. They're, they're not content with, and, and this is one of the, the just most obnoxious things about this whole uh, gun grabbing, you know, mood that that many politicians and big media types are in favor of. They have all kinds of protection. They've got hired guards who are protecting them, who have big guns and are trained in how to use them. So they've got the protection, but they want to take away our protection because we're just supposed to trust them with everything. But now they say, "Gee." There are people saying things online that are hurtful and threatening and terrible in one way or another. And it's not just that they want to police them. It's that they want to police these statements when they're made about them. Not you, not me. This isn't about protecting Americans or Virginians from having somebody online say something that they view as threatening. This is about protecting politicians. So in the land of the free, we have to give up some freedom so that politicians aren't threatened by us. They aren't threatened by what we say. They aren't threatened by us having a firearm and by just the thought that maybe if they became tyrannical, that they wouldn't have the power to just enslave us, to overtake us. That's what this whole debate is about. But it's, it's interesting here that you can really see the class structure of this. And I don't mean the, 
the bourgeoisie and the and the proletariat. I'm talking about the political class and the rest of us, the riffraff. So uh, we now know it's not only a double standard when it comes to gun ownership and protecting yourself. It's a double standard when it comes to who can speak about whom. And uh, that's just outrageous. And I think, I think one of the nice things is uh, we did have uh, several commenters, uh, including John Brennan, who's, who uh, won. I, he always uses his name, you know, instead of some, some other uh, thing. And, and uh, boy, did he hit the nail on the head. He says, I am the government. You're only allowed God, and I will have no others before me or chastising me, including you, the people. And then he added, Washington is spinning in his grave. I'll tell you, this. Uh, we will get to our last commentary of the week, uh, and we'll talk again about free speech. And I'll tell you what, if, you know, there are all kinds of freedoms that we have because of the Bill of Rights and because of our system, and I want to hold on to all of them. But it's interesting to me how again and again, the very structure of our freedom is that, especially when it comes to speech, and you know, from Thomas Jefferson talking about, if we had to choose between a free government and a free press, we'd choose a free press, because of the importance of information, the importance of being able to speak, the importance of being able to assemble together. The First Amendment is critical, and it's all about stopping the government from policing our speech, stopping the government from being the judge, jury, and executioner of what we say politically, and instead giving people just carte blanche to say what we want to say. Now, obviously, there are certain things. There are laws against libel and slander. Uh, you know, you cry fire in a crowded theater, and you're going to have some civil suits slapped on you, and well, you should. But our concept of freedom of speech is different than anywhere in the world. Different in that it is so strongly held. It is so essential to what's happening in America. And when we get to our final commentary, we will see again that there are a lot of people who talk about rights and the Constitution and our system of government who seem to think that it's just okay for the government to police our speech. And that is the antithesis of what should be happening. We, the citizens, police our government and need to be careful about what they're doing. What we say to one another about politics, uh, even when it's heated, has got to be protected. And protected against what? Protected against policing by the powers that be. Now, our, our second uh, commentary of the week was a little, a little fun. Um, just brought back some of the, you know, it was, it was all about Hillary Clinton, who has said outrageous BS about Tulsi Gabbard, suggesting that she is a Russian asset, that the Russians are grooming her, saying all kinds of things that she has no evidence for. And, and not just saying, geez, we should look into it, but that this is true, that 
Tulsi Gabbard is a Russian agent. And so <laughs> Tulsi Gabbard, and uh, I hope I kind of hope she doesn't win this suit because I don't think that she really, you know, in, in these types of political battles back and forth, uh, word battles, uh, that again, that we need the, the government in policing everything. Although Tulsi does have a legitimate claim that she's being slandered. And in that case, even though because Tulsi is a public figure, that's a very, very high bar. I wouldn't say that Tulsi doesn't have a leg to stand on. She does have a leg to stand on. I just think at the end of the day, um, it's not, it's not going to be enough to, to win the case. But what's interesting is that this week, uh, because of the Clinton body count, the hashtag Clinton body count, and, and of course, young people are probably going, what are you talking about? But back in the day, and I'm talking about the, the uh, roaring 1990s, um, when the Clintons were in the White House, I still remember there were posters that had all these different people who had met death or, or bad things, but mainly death in some nefarious uh, uh, series of events, were connected to the Clintons in some way. And so there was all this talk about the Clintons as like a criminal gang and, and the Clinton body count, all the people who had crossed them and, you know, gotten deep sixed. And, uh, and so the hashtag Tulsi didn't kill herself because, of course, uh, um, oh, I'm going to forget his name of uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Isn't it funny? As I get older, if I just start to forget somebody's name, I, I go apoplectic. You know, when I was younger, I just go, "Ah, oh, I forgot his name. It's no big deal." <laughs> but I'm well, going to be turn. I'm going to be turning sixty this year, and all of a sudden, if I forget anything, you know, it's over. Well, it's a sign. It's a sign you're old, right? <laughs> Before it was just a sign that you for, that you might have forgotten. That I was forgetful. Right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, right. But now it's a sign. It's the implication. But, but, you know, Jeffrey Epstein, which we just for a second should point out, you aren't running a very good criminal justice system if anyone incarcerated kills themselves. There's always the doubt of whether they killed themselves or not. That's even when everything checks out, you always have that doubt and you don't want that sort of criminal justice system. You want people to feel confident that they're not going to be in jail and all of a sudden be killed. Um, that's, you know, that happened actually in, in Prince George's County. I won't go into that story because it's a tangent, but uh, the, somebody had, had been alleged to have killed a policeman, was sent into the jail. I am going to go into the story. I just lied. Uh, but went into their jail. Uh, and this is uh, years ago. Um, this is Prince George is calling me to threaten me probably, but, uh, Prince George's County, but they, they went into the jail and they died. They were killed or committed suicide. It's not really clear. But then they found that the tape, the uh, videotape that they have at the jail, well, nobody could find it. It malfunctioned, whatever, the no tape. And then everybody, all the police working at the jail, took the Fifth Amendment in the, in the investigation. So pretty obviously, this person was killed and they got away with it. So that's how it, that's how it works in Prince George's County, which is why when I drive through Maryland, I'm really careful. Um, but in, in Jeffrey Epstein's case, here is a super, arguably the highest profile uh, convict in the whole system. And, uh, and 
here he is, he was on suicide watch and then he's not. And then he's supposed to have somebody in his cell and they're not there. He's supposed to have people watching him, they're sleeping. This is the Keystone Cops. And so this is a, this is a really serious, to me, a very serious situation. And we'll all joke for years now about, you know, Epstein didn't kill himself. Something happened here, but it's not really very funny. Something did happen here, I think. And uh, at the highest levels of our government, if you're on the wrong side of powerful people, you could end up dead. And nobody will be the wiser except the entire public will know that something's wrong, but we will also feel like there's really nothing we can do about it. That's not the way we're supposed to feel in a free country. Anyway, I digressed, but that's why there's the Tulsi didn't kill herself uh, hashtag, because of course, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, who had a relationship with Mr. Trump, had a probably much deeper relationship with Bill Clinton. And in fact, uh, uh, President Trump, though he was buddy-buddy with Epstein for a while, had a falling out. And there's some suggestion that uh, that the falling out was over some uh, women who had accused Epstein of things. And and in one of the uh, cases, uh, Trump supposedly uh, provided some information to the people going against Epstein and seemed to hold it against Epstein. So, you know, for Mr. Trump, uh, it looks like he was actually doing the right thing, uh, at least at that point. And, uh, and with Clinton, there, no evidence that he was involved in anything particular, but he flew on the plane a lot of times, and, and now Epstein's dead, so he can, he can go on that poster with all the other people who, who, you know, I don't think Bill Clinton did anything to, or Hillary Clinton necessarily did anything to, but are on the poster because they met, they met a sad end. Um, what's, what's interesting about this whole story, and Tulsi Gabbard, frankly, is that she is the only candidate who is speaking out forcefully again and again, and not just forcefully, but clearly. She is very clear that we are not gonna have regime change wars. I think much clearer than, you know, a, a lot of us libertarians have been hopeful that Trump, because sometimes he talks, you know, sometimes he talks about blowing people to, you know, to kingdom come, other times he talks about having some restraint, um, even showed some restraint toward Iran uh, earlier and so on. And, and uh, you know, before Soleimani uh, was, was uh, executed by drone strike. But um, so there's, there was some hope with Trump and there, there maybe is still some hope that, that on some of these issues he'll be good. Tulsi Gabbard is a clarion call, no regime change wars, and for that reason, even though I disagree with her on probably 80%, 70% of her various issues, I'd be tempted to vote for her because it's, it's about the only way, you know, we have this huge deep state. It seems like the only time American media is united, the only time the media was united in supporting uh, President Trump is when he bombed Syria for their weapons or chemical weapons attack, which of course, as more information has come out, is really highly, you know, highly un un unsure as to whether that was actually the government's chemical weapons attack or whether it was a chemical weapons attack uh, by the rebels, either, uh, you know, designed to make it look like the government did it or what have you, to try to pull the U.S. in. 
things like that have happened before. So, but, but it was interesting to me that when Trump launches a, a cruise missile to blow up an airfield in Syria, MSNBC loves him. The former communist, maybe still a communist, Van Jones, says he's presidential tonight. The media loved him. Now, you would think MSNBC, which is on the, on the left, CNN, aren't they on the left? Well, this is the left, yes, but it's the left that really likes war, that really likes foreign entanglements all over the globe, bases everywhere, being dragged into every fight, deciding every issue in the world because we're the world's superpower. The American people who don't seem to be able to have much choice when it comes to foreign policy have been very, very concerned about constant interventions and, and these wars in the Middle East that we can't have. It's easy to win because the other side hardly has an army, but we can't get out ever, years, decades, we, we can't get out. Nobody has a plan to get out. In fact, in Afghanistan, I'm going on a tangent, but it's all right. In Afghanistan, we, our plan to get out is to negotiate with the Taliban, which was the whole reason that we went into top of the Taliban. Now we've got to stay long enough to get them back into the government, to have a coalition government, between the guys that we picked out to put up in front and the Taliban so that we can leave, we won't be gone seven seconds before the Taliban will shoot the other guys in the head and take over. I think we all know this. Everyone knows this. And yet we pretend that's not the case. And year after year after year, we're going to be there. And it's not thousands of people being killed. Ah, maybe just two or three or dozens or a hundred or a thousand. These are our brothers and sisters. That's how Tulsi Gabbard says it. And it seems kind of like a spiel, but you know what? She's right. They are our brothers and sisters, aren't they? I don't want, my nephew went over to Afghanistan. Uh, this was years ago, probably five, six, seven years ago. And I just thought, oh my goodness, don't let him lose his life on something like this. And you, you, would, you never want anyone to lose their life. But you know, there is something different about someone making that sacrifice, taking that risk because of something that people believe in so much, like freedom, like being free from some tyranny, like protecting your, your loved ones. Then it's, it's still horrible if someone dies, but you can, you can always look at that and say, they were doing something so important. But when you're over there in some complete, as, as I think we called it, a cluster yuck, that was, that was last week. But it's a good name for it because you can't say the other one or people get upset. And that's exactly what it is. To think that we're going to have Americans die so that we can play the charade in Afghanistan as if we're turning it into some paradise, it's not. And if we could wave a wand and, and turn it into a para paradise, well then, you know, maybe we should wave that wand. I think we probably should. We can't. And we have to stop letting people lose their lives because we're afraid to, to look at the truth. So anyway, Tulsi Gabbard is a breath of fresh air. And it is a signal to all of us that the media hates 
her guts. She can't be on a program for two seconds without getting all this attitude and all this, you met with Assad years ago and you've done this and you've done that as if they have some evidence, which of course they don't because there is none, that she's an agent of Assad's or an agent of the Russians. Look, we can't have peace anywhere if every time someone suggests maybe we wouldn't, shouldn't always be at war, their patriotism is somehow questioned. They're really for somebody, you know, for like, like Tulsi Gabbard, who risked her behind to go over to Iraq, is somehow, you know, an agent of Assad, give me a break. And, and that the media can trot out this kind of crap. And I say the media because she hasn't gotten that treatment on Fox very much. Of course, she's a Democrat. And, and she's creating some rifts among Democrats. Um, and so because the establishment types don't really represent the party rank and file, which is much better when it comes to intervening in Afghanistan or Iraq, just like the Republican Party uh, rank and file is much more skeptical about being in Afghanistan and Iraq than are the, the neocons who were running the party when all those things happened. So um, breath of fresh air and the media just has pushed her out of any spotlight at any time. Uh, and, and it's something that I, I notice, uh, the, you know, I'm very into the media and you see how much almost, you know, if, if Fox knew, knows that MSNBC is on a certain side, it's almost like they immediately go to the other side and vice versa. And yet when it comes to bombing some foreign country, they're all in favor of it. Now that changed a little bit with, uh, with, uh, this most recent, uh, drone strike knocking out the Iranian commander. But I suspect that it changed because it's right at an election year. And, and so, you know, if there's an angle uh, that this affects the election, of course, the Democrats supporting media is, is going to be much harsher to Mr. Trump. But, uh, but, but pay attention to that, um, folks, because I think you're going to find that uh, the one place the American mainstream media, especially the television media, but the print, Washington Post, New York Times as well, which drives everything. Um, they are united when it comes to America sustaining a world empire that is constantly intervening into the affairs of just about everybody. And I think that's a recipe for disaster, and I think most Americans do, and yet we're fed uh, just a constant uh, barrage of arguments for why that's the only way it can be. And we can't ever possibly uh, ever bring our troops home from somewhere. Uh, the world's changing and uh, American policy is going to have to change. But we, the people, are going to have to do that over the objections of our elected representatives. That's a euphemism these days. And over the objections, the very strenuous objections of a pretty united media cabal who loves foreign involvement and sadly war. And in your uh, Wednesday piece, America's Safe for Quagmire, as you move on to Iraq. Yes, um, you, you know, I wasn't even thinking as I went into the long <laughs> thing about war that that's what's up, what's up next. But 
Um, and, and we wrote about, uh, you know, when, when the Iraqi parliament passed their thing saying American troops need to get out. And in fact, we're, we're pushing for all foreign troops to get out, uh, including Iranian troops. Uh, and of course, the, the, the protests that have been rocking Iraq, no pun intended, uh, for, for weeks and weeks, um, you know, it's something that I think our media should have paid more attention to because we've set up that government. And so when a government that we have set up and that we have troops occupying that state, we have troops helping that government maintain that state. And there are hundreds of protesters who have been killed by security forces. That's, that's us. I mean, we're just the guy behind the guy behind the guy. And that tyranny is being paid for, sustained, protected, enabled by the United States of America. And, uh, and I don't think there's been any real discussion about that in America from that vantage point, that we have actual responsibility, like it's not somebody else. And interestingly enough, they have asked us to leave in terms of the, the uh, prime minister. He's kind of a uh, quasi-prime minister because he resigned, but he's still there as a caretaker as they get somebody else. Uh, it's a little bit of a mess. You know, we, we did set up the government. That, that might be part of the reason. Um, which is another thing that every time I think about us setting up the Iraqi government, and we said this at the time, if you go back in the, in the annals of common sense commentaries, hey, why didn't we suggest they use the Constitution? It's worked so well for us. Why wouldn't you feel almost honor bound to say, well, you know, here's what we really think is the best way to do it. But I mean, if you don't like that, we could discuss ways to change it. But wouldn't you put that forward? That's not what our State Department put forward. They put forward another plan that wasn't nearly as good as the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Um, so it's, you know, we, we make the, the world safe for democracy but sometimes we forget the democracy part of that. Oftentimes we forget even the safe part of that. We're making the world safe for something, but it seems to be safe for quagmires. And, uh, and of course you pointed out to me, Tim, that, that you know, uh, as we were talking about this, which kind of led to the, to the commentary, how you remind me about George H.W. Bush, the good Bush, <laughs> Unfortunately, there wasn't one, um, but uh, who, after his intervention in Kuwait, which, of course, if you look at the history of that, you're going to realize that the U.S. played a stupid role in allowing that to go forward and then ended up getting involved militarily in a way that, that we shouldn't have had to. But after that, George H.W. Bush, Papa Bush, said hey, we've kicked the Vietnam syndrome. So after Vietnam, after the American people saw how these no-win wars, where you're trying to control the government of, a, of another country, where the government you're trying to prop up is really your government, it's not seen by the people who live in that country as their government, that doesn't quite work. And, uh, and but boy, after we intervene, in in kuwait and push out the iraqis 
Papa Bush says, boy, we've ended that, that craziness that somehow we shouldn't intervene. And he's, he's got a point. Maybe we did end that, that thinking, which wasn't crazy. It was very smart because we have been involved in intervention after intervention. I used to say years ago, I used to kind of joke to my, my wife in the morning and say, you know, I had this crazy dream that we had invaded the Middle East with soldiers. We had our soldiers in the Middle East. Can you believe it? Oh, wait, that's not a dream. Um, but, but it's crazy what we're doing. No plan to do it in some way that's going to work out. Although, as, as regular listeners know, I don't think we have the ability to intervene in some better, smarter way that's going to work out. But the truth is the people who are in Afghanistan who are looking at that, there's been all kinds of reports that we're constantly lied to, that they're hiding the truth of what's going on. But we know we've been there for two decades. And if we leave, the Taliban takes over tomorrow. And I have a feeling we're going to be there for three or four or five or six or seven or eight or nine or 10 decades. That is a century. And the second we leave, it's not going to be the cobbled together, held at gunpoint together Afghanistan that we've come to know and love. So, I mean, this is, uh, this is hugely important politically, economically, every other way, because if our government can do anything it wants outside of the borders of the United States, it can constantly suck us into wars we shouldn't be fighting. It can use those wars and other events to whip up patriotic fervor, to hide other things that are happening that we wouldn't like so much, that might cause us to kick these bums out on their keister. And so the, our whole foreign policy, to me, um, we don't have near the type of influence as voters. We have, a, we have this Congress that represents us in Washington. We have this president that even though he didn't get a majority of the vote, he got the electoral college, millions of people voted for him. He's supposed to be representing us. I don't think they do a very good job, not on economic issues, not on civil liberties, not on criminal justice. We have to scream and cry and demonstrate and push our own state and local initiatives and do all kinds of things to get any type of action. So I'm not acting like, boy, the only problem is on foreign policy, but the worst place is on foreign policy, where so often they hide the ball. They pretend that we can't know. Oh, they know all the classified secret stuff. Well, if they know a lot of stuff that we don't know, why do they keep making so many completely boneheaded moves in foreign policy? Why did they think that they could, you know, intervene in Iraq and it would just, and the Iraqi people would just cheer and love us and want us to occupy them forever? This is silliness. This is not, they have some special information. Again, they are using that secret information to hide the ball. And if they can hide the ball, we don't really live in a citizen-controlled democratic country. The whole point of democracy is for citizens to be in control. The key isn't having an election. If you have an election where you can't vote for anybody, you know, the old Soviet Union, they had elections. You could vote for this guy the, Soviet, the Communist Party put up or the other guy the Communist Party put up. 
We have elections like that in a lot of the United States. We have, we've had elections when term limits first took effect in Florida years ago. The majority of Florida legislators had not received a single vote in the last election. Think about that for a second. It's true. Here's why. If you run unopposed in Florida, you don't go on the ballot. Most states you do. There's just your name. You get a single vote, you win. In Florida, if you're unopposed, you win by acclamation. You win if, if that might not be the right way to say that, but you win and you're not on the ballot. They had so little competition that literally a majority of their entire legislature in the last election was not on the ballot because they didn't have anyone running against them. And, and of course, then this is, how our, this is how things work. This is why I want to pull my hair out. A few years after that, after term limits had taken effect in Florida, and they were having elections. Oh, you have choice. There's actually people running against the incumbent. Chuck Todd with NBC does this segment where he slaps term limits because term limits has led to much more spending. Much more spending in politics in Florida now because of term limits. Well, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Now, he, he said it like it was a really bad thing. But of course, in elections where there's nobody to vote for, there's no spending. There's no need to spend. They're not <laughs> even on the ballot. You couldn't even spend and convince everybody in the entire you know, House district or Senate district to vote nobody. Just don't vote anybody. Vote for somebody you know, who's a write-in. No, they'd still win. So you have a majority of the legislature voted for, not at all, they're controlling. That's, that's not democracy. That's not the idea. The idea behind democracy and the reason we all vote is because it's we as a whole who should be the final arbiter, the final decision maker. And, you know, and, and some people out there, I'm sure, Paul, Come on, thanks for the thanks for the civics lesson uh, and all the you know sweet heartfelt uh, American democracy and so on. But you know some people are too sophisticated for any of that. There's a level of reality in democracy. Just because you hold an election doesn't mean the people who voted for the winner are in control, or that the people as a whole are in control. And I think that if people look at our system today, they're going to see they're not getting the types of choices that they need to get, that they don't get the sort of response from their representatives that they think that they ought to be getting and they're what right they ought to be getting. And then when it, you know, when it comes to foreign policy, my goodness, um, we're not really even part of the conversation. So we, we've got a real problem there. And it was interesting in the comments um, that I thought uh, so often in, in, on TV, in the halls of Congress, when they're talking about foreign policy, they're always mealy-mouthing everything. They're always, everything is, is said carefully, you know, uh, uh, I, I remember years ago, John Huntsman, when he was first running as a, as a Republican for president, he started to talk about it. And so I was enthralled. He was talking about how we've got to look at, we can't be the world's policemen. 
And in the course of the conversation, I believe this was on Morning Joe, in the course of the conversation, someone said, well, but what if in some hamlet in Afghanistan, the Taliban comes back? And his first comment was, well, then we'd have to, we'd have to come right back and defend those people and so on. It's like, so the non-interventionist was that, but if the first bit of trouble anywhere in the globe happens, we'll immediately, you know, launch the, uh, the 82nd Airborne in. Um, anyway, very thoughtful comments uh, uh, on, this, on this piece about quagmires. And it was, it's by people who didn't seem to me to be very ideological, but, but very much have been watching what's going on. Um, and in fact, uh, John Brennan, who, who's a regular commenter and, and uh, uh, a, a friend of mine who knows John, I, I, I don't know him personally. I may have met him once, but I, I don't really know him personally. But a friend of mine who knows him uh, uh, said something. I said, oh, he's a commenter on, my, on my, uh, a lot of the commentaries I do. And uh, he said, well, what do you think of him? I said, I think he's right more than I am. Uh, so anyway, that was my comment about John Brennan. He's right more than I am. Uh, because if I ever, if, if he disagrees with me about half the time or more, I'm thinking, oh, he's got a point. Anyway, he says, I agree that the time to get out, given that we have been invited to leave, which presents an opportunity which the U.S. should avail itself of. But he goes on, he says, additionally, we should not delay simply because another power will slif swiftly move in to fill the vacuum. And he goes on to say some other things. And, and part of that is, I think he's pointing out, any time we leave, there are some bad things that could happen. It doesn't mean that we always have to stay everywhere. I, I think about, you know, when ISIS popped up, and we've talked about this before, but when ISIS popped up, they immediately kind of said, we'll take on the United States of America. And I always related it to, you know, when Muhammad Ali was still alive, if I would have said, you know, hey, I'll take on Muhammad Ali. Well, Ali would beat me to a pole. <laughs> He's dead. He still might beat me to a pole. But he would be an idiot to take that challenge if he said, oh, I'm going to take on Paul Jacob. All of a sudden, my, my you know, kind of name ID in the boxing world has gone through the roof. He's doing me a favor by taking me seriously. And we did ISIS a favor, unfortunately, by taking them seriously. And of course, you know, if you say, well, we shouldn't have gone in there to fight ISIS, the first reaction you're going to get from the media and from the power elite in Washington, D.C. is, oh, so you're just going to let ISIS take over? No, there are other people who live in the Middle East. And they also have arms and legs and brains, and they can do things. And I think had we not rushed in to fight ISIS, that it would have caused the kind of coalition building that would have led to not only a better outcome with ISIS, I think they still would have wiped out ISIS, but it would have been done by people in the neighborhood. And there would have been, I think, relationships developed that wouldn't have all been dependent on the US to, to decide every issue. And, and so, you know, if we leave places, bad things can happen. That's not, the only way to avoid that is to stay in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and other places, Syria, forever. 
And I don't want my kids and my grandkids and my great grandkids to live a life where they're the, the cop in some foreign country. They're the soldier occupying some other country. We got lots of stuff to do here. They can have a wonderful life uh, figuring out computers, uh, you know, making, you know, new discoveries. I don't want my, my uh, future, uh, what do you call them, peeps, to, uh, to spend their time walking the beat in Baghdad and in uh, Kabul. So anyway, and, and I think that a lot of the American people don't want that either. Another person, Pat, points out that the Europeans, this quote, the Europeans have a greater need for Iraqi oil than we do, which is absolutely true. They also have the means to protect their own sovereignty. Let them do their fair share. You know, we talk about when, when Vietnam was going on, LBJ said, we shouldn't have American boys doing what Asian boys could do. And of course, in our modern world, it's boys and girls, men and women. And he's right. Why then we continued to have American boys do it is another question. And of course, nearly 60,000 dead in, in Vietnam. So absolutely right. The Europeans, like we got sucked into Libya uh, to do it as part of a NATO thing. If, if European countries wanted to do that, let them go do it. It would have been a stupid thing to do, but we didn't have to be part of it. And to me, when I think of Barack Obama, whose, whose win in 2008 was so largely attributable to the fact that he opposed the Iraq war when Clinton favored it and voted for it, for him to not be able to get the troops out of Iraq that he promised he would, and when I say not be able to not do it, he was able to, uh, but not be willing to take whatever political hit you're going to get from the United Media who loves foreign intervention and war, he didn't want to do it. Not to get out of Afghanistan, in fact, to surge, uh, but even if you give him, you know, okay, we understand it was hard to do politically, how on earth does the peace candidate like that then decide he's going to topple another regime and topple Libya without any real plan for what to do next? Not that the plans for what to do next ever work out anyway, but, you know, maybe having one's better than not having any plan. So, I think, uh, I, I think it's really interesting because so often I think in this country, we see Europe as always liberal. They're always more, you know, because they're more socialist and so on. Um, and, and, and of course we say that they're more socialist. They have more social programs maybe, or a, or a, little, a little stronger net, but of course, economically, they're not socialist. The government doesn't own all the means of production. That's not how it's working. But, it's, it's interesting that they oftentimes, their governments, not their people, their governments are urging our government to help intervene in places to do things that shouldn't be done. The other interesting thing that Pat points out, which is uh, what I've thought all along, you know, we've built an embassy over there. I say we, meaning the government in our name, has built this gigantic, I think it's, what is it, 
four four thousand acres it's some it's just some maybe it's 40 acres i i, I should back off I, there's a big difference between 40 and four thousand. but whatever it is it's this huge embassy and i'm thinking this is like a huge target this is silly we're going to go we topple this regime we set up a new government and we're building this huge embassy isn't there something about the optics of that that don't look right? And it's like a lot of times when you buy something that you're not sure about, but you've struggled and you're gonna, you're really going for it all. If you're smart, sometimes the first thing you do is get rid of that because you're way too sucked into that investment. And I think that's a little bit how we look at how our government looks at Iraq. Well, in fact, Trump said when they said uh, that we might have to leave, well, they're gonna have to pay us for the base that we built in their country. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not how you win friends and influence people. And if, and if we think we can just stomp around the globe and force people to do what we want, we're even crazier, but you're not gonna do it this way. And, and uh, so it's, it's interesting that, that Pat picked up on the fact that our citizens, she says, quote, our, she, it could be a he, uh, our citizens, and if it is, I'm sorry I called you she, and if it's not, I'm sorry I called you he. Anyway, our citizens are not safe in Iraq. Everyone should leave. And, I, you know, at some point if we left, I suspect whatever citizens are still there because they don't see the big footprint of the U.S. military and the U.S. government would probably be a lot safer. But right now, our diplomats are not safe, and we are there in harm's way, just waiting for something bad to happen. And when it happens, Americans are gonna say, well, we need to hit back. Well, don't put yourself in places where you're gonna be hit and then need to hit back. It's why most of us, you know, there are parts of almost every town that are rougher than other parts of that town. And I've never known any sensible parent to say, hey, you know what? Why don't you go to the really rough area of town and try to straighten some things out? That's just, and I don't want my kids to go to the rough areas of the world and straighten them out. Now, there's no question that any time Americans have been forced to go do tough things, like kill people and blow up stuff and risk their lives, they've done it. We've done it, we've done it well, and we'll do it again. I have no doubt. I'm, I had someone years ago, what well, do you think these millennials would defend this country if they had to? Our millennials, our millennials who are just completely obsessed with intersectionality will be kicking butt on the front lines if they have to, because people like to be free. They don't like to be taken over. If we ever have to fight, I'm, I have a lot of confidence in the millennials. They'll be talking about how even though I'm you know, black and transgender and from this part of the country, I still did pretty good in the trenches, you know, so. I have no fears about that. I really do, uh, just as a, as a weird tangent, you hear so much ridiculous stuff about millennials. And I've got, I've got uh, three kids who I think are, I think my oldest is not quite a millennial. No, maybe she is, maybe it's the youngest. Anyway, they're on the edge, but they're, they're right around the millennials. And I see them work their butts off. I, I see their friends working, trying to go to college. I, I go to Starbucks every day and get my uh, flat white, which costs too much. But I just love 
uh, you know, shooting the breeze with, with the young people working at Starbucks. And I get to see them start like one, one guy who's, who's doing really well there. I think he's in some level of management there now, but he was a friend of my youngest daughters and, and started work there as anybody else, you know, at the, at the bottom. And just to see him take charge of stuff and, you know, all of them learn how to do stuff and treat customers and it's great. And I, I see it. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I am going to go on a long tangent here because it, it I, I, I see my, my, uh, kids, friends working their way through school, helping their parents help them. Um, and so when I hear this stuff, I just, it just doesn't mesh with what I see. And, and I'm not saying that they aren't more liberal than, than older folks are. But you know, the truth is almost everybody is more liberal when they're younger and kind of think the government can do things to make everything, you know, a big amusement park, uh, just with a flip of a switch, then, then after you've seen how much they take out of your paycheck. Um, so, you know, I think there's kind of some natural things there, but, but I'll tell you, it's, it's, uh, I hear it so often and it just, you know, I hope I never, I'll feel old if I ever start kind of putting down young people as a class, because truth is, I think that, I think we got a good generation. We just, we just have to, uh, uh, not continue to, uh, let them, let them, uh, be taught and controlled by politicians who have ulterior motives. I'd like to right now say, Okay, boomer, but that would be inappropriate. Um, <laughs> and you're not quite a boomer. You might be Gen X, right? You're no, no, no. I am a boomer. I am a boomer because I'm I'm 60, and I uh, the the baby boom usually is uh, 46 to 64. Oh, it's all the way to 64. I thought I stopped yeah, about it's 62. all the way to 64. 62. Although I'm, I'm sure different people have different things. You know, here's the other thing that that is interesting. Uh, I've talked about how uh, just to close this on uh, quagmires. Um, two war ABN vet. I don't, I'm not sure what the ABN means, so I can't say it as some neat thing, but he, he has comments a lot. Uh, don't always agree, but thoughtful comments. Uh, and he went into a long comment here. And one of the things he's got a problem with is fighting wars that you don't intend to win. And the reason he's got a problem with it is because he's done it. Not only has he done it, he, he says here, I found myself in the central highlands of Vietnam and my president was talking about sending messages to the enemy. And you heard that complaint all the time in, in, during Vietnam. And you've heard it since because we're fighting the same sorts of conflicts. It's, and some of these wars, they're so convoluted, there's no way to win because war is a political thing. It's not just how many people you kill on the battlefield. And so a place like Afghanistan, we've won the war part of it already. Same in Iraq. It was like a, you know, a two week, you know, let's, let's take two weeks and, and take over this country militarily. That's not the hard part. The hard part is the political part that follows. But of course in Vietnam, it was a much, a much different war. This was, uh, we were fighting an enemy that could fight and that used some tactics. And with us kind of not having, I think, a solid reason for fighting. You know, when we were fighting World War II, we had a solid reason and people knew what victory meant. 
and what was going to happen after victory. And when you freed a country from the Nazis, they did cheer and they did throw flowers and stuff at you. At you. Um, that hasn't happened in recent conflicts. But not only does he point out how he felt when he was in Vietnam facing war and feeling like he didn't have a political uh, leadership behind him that he could count on. And then he goes on to say that his eldest daughter was in uh, Iraq, uh, that that was her second war. I think she was maybe, I don't know if she was in the Gulf War before that or in Afghanistan. His eldest son uh, has been in two wars. You know, for people who are in the military, I think so often, and you saw this during Vietnam sometimes, where I think people who aren't in the military think, well, they're, they're gung-ho for war. They like war. They're into all this stuff. And it was the military leaders, the military industrial complex, which of course, you know, you, you got to get pretty high up in the military before you get, you get your membership card into the, into the military industrial complex. And, and you don't get it if you're working the line at McDonnell Douglas or North, what is it, Northrop Grumman or whatever. You got to be up at the, at the top. Anyway, uh, uh, but it seems like we, we have this idea that these folks who are, are out there fighting these wars, they want to be fighting the wars. I think they want to be in the military. I think they like that life. They aspire to that. Uh, they're moved and inspired by that. And I, I understand that 100%. Uh, because you do have to defend freedom. But it was interesting a few years ago when, I guess it was 2012, when uh, Ron Paul was running for president, that he, as really the only candidate who was talking down the line about ending empire, stopping all these interventions, no more regime change wars, he received the most money, the most contributions from military people. Now, he didn't raise anywhere close to the most money. I believe there was at one point that he had received more money from military, from active duty military people than the other Republican candidates combined. So no, and I live in an area now that a lot of military people in Northern Virginia, a lot of military people, they are not gun ho to go fight wars. They don't want to die. They don't want to kill people. They want the country to be safe, free, at peace. And they know that strength detours attacks, not weakness. I'm with them all the way on that. They also are very wary of politicians wanting to intervene. And uh, it's, it's the kind of thing where the, our problem is not the military. Our problem is 110% political. And, and where you might see the military pushing for something, it's at a level that's high enough oh. that they're political. They're not, they're not the rank and file going, hey, I want to go over to some dusty land and start firing uh, live ammunition back and forth. George W. Bush, not H.W., but George W. Bush, going into office, he was presented plans for conquering all the countries of the Mideast. It was just, they were going to do it one by one by one. And that was a high up plan. 
And uh, that's the deep state, in my opinion, part, partly. It's not just a high military. military. It was, it, was, it was a plan that somebody really wants. The West has been fighting in Afghanistan since the 1880s, um, 1890s. Britain was in Afghanistan. Uh, Sherlock Holmes' first story begins with discussing the Afghan war. It's interesting. Uh, uh, one of the things that was pointed out in the comments, uh, you know, was that what are we doing sending our soldiers into the grave of empires, they say, but I always think of it as the graveyard of empires. Uh, same, same difference. And, uh, and points out that we've ignored history. And, and it doesn't, history doesn't always repeat. But boy, if you're going to go into Afghanistan, it seems like you'd want to know the history. I'll tell you something else. Uh, years ago, long after Vietnam was over, I read the uh, PBS had a 10-part series or something on, on Vietnam. I think it was Stanley Carnow was the author of the book that was the companion to the television series. And uh, I read that book, the first, like, Oh, third of the book. It was a long book, like 500, 600 pages. But the first third of it was Vietnamese history. And, you know, all I thought about and all I heard growing up about Vietnam was the firepower we had against them. And it was kind of like, here were this big, strong, you know, strapping lad against this little pipsqueak. But if you knew anything about Vietnamese history, you would know that every every horde of of armed folks came through Vietnam and they fought them all. That yes, they were ravaged again and again, but anybody who went through Vietnam got a fight. And this was, we had no appreciation, it seems to me, Certainly not in the public, but I don't even think at the highest levels of the of the Pentagon or the State Department or or the government did they have any real sense of who they were fighting, and you know know your enemy is a smart thing, and and so you you see that again and again that we we just think that if if we have more poundage of bombs or if we have this or that or look at look at look. Uh, Cuba has been a thorn in the U.S. side. I'm not a fan of Cuba. They have a, a country that, if it were competent, would be a totalitarian country. They're just too darn incompetent to be any, anywhere close to totalitarian. But they want to be. And so it's a terrible government and, and so on. Obviously, we could invade and take it over at any time. It, there'd be some costs in life and, you know, exploded things and wrecked this or that, but it wouldn't be that hard to do. So why don't we do it? Then Cuba would be a free, wonderful place and we would have no more problems. Except that it's hard to turn places into free, wonderful places at bayonet point. And of course, most, I think, of the Cuban people would embrace a change and and maybe are coming, but they'd start to resent it pretty quickly if we didn't, you know, quickly get the heck out of there and something else take over. The other thing is it sets up this whole dynamic of us as the conquerors. I don't want to be the conquerors. 
I want to beat the crap out of anybody who aggresses against us, but I don't want to conquer any other country. And I don't think Americans do. And we will lose our soul doing something like that and doing it again and again. And people could argue we've, we've lost our soul doing that. That's the history will be the judge of that, but that's why it's not so easy to do these things and why, you know, we're always told how everything's when we go into a rock, they were going to cheer and throw flowers and love us. Don't believe these politicians and don't believe the media in their, in their walk up to war with all the fun stuff. Um, and, and I don't think, I don't think we have too many media people who say, gee, let's, let's hype this war up to make everyone like it so that we can have a better job where it's more fun, we're doing more exciting stuff. You know, they're not evil people like that. Nobody gets up in the morning, looks at the mirror and goes, who can I screw over today? At least not many people. And, and they do all live in Washington, but it's just a few of them. The reality is these folks are influenced though by who they speak to on a daily basis. And, and in the newsrooms, where they believe in the empire and us being a superpower that can do anything they tend to play those things up they're going to be talking to people at the state department and the pentagon and the white house and the congress who all seem to believe these things things that they believe too and so of course the media is apt to hype these things up and of course they're apt to enjoy the stardom that they get this isn't because they're bad people it's because they're people but it's not a good thing. And uh, so I, I, think, uh, I think we have been whistling past the graveyard uh, for a long time. And if we don't get a handle, um, and it's so bad, and we talked about this weeks ago, it's so bad that now people suggest sometimes that we should conscript young people so that we can terrorize their parents enough to get their parents to pay attention to yank the chains of, of people in Congress to change our foreign policy. We can yank chains in Congress without giving our young people as, a, as just cannon fodder that the, that the politicians can conscript anytime they feel like it. But that's how crazy I think the thinking has, has gotten. We better move on before, you know, before we're old and die. We talked last week about AB5, the assembly bill that passed in California that basically makes it almost impossible to be a freelancer. Uh, it was aimed at going after the gig economy, Uber, Lyft, things like that, uh, which, is, which is basically they have regulated and, and created a stagnant economy for the old economy and by golly, they don't want this new gig economy to shake things up. In essence, this is also an attack on, on media, uh, any sort of uh, petition circulators, any, any business that is using independent contractors. And it's also a war on those independent contractors, because I know a lot of independent contractors that if they wanted, to go work for company A or company B, they could go work for company A or company B, but they would prefer to have the freedom 
to do what they want to do. So they work some for company A and some for company B and maybe company C and company D, and they structure their own life that way. And of course, what's behind all this, and then we, we did a, a piece, the anti-workerism, uh, that pointed out that it's, even though this is creating all kinds of problems in California, there are numerous lawsuits where people are saying, look, you're killing us. I'm getting fired from this national company because they've got all these independent contractors, but because I live in California, I can't be one. They're going to create a number of, of people losing their jobs. And, and we pointed out that there's, you know, it, it, everybody's not being thrown out of the streets, just taxi drivers and, and cleaners and nurses and comedians and writers and editors and musicians. But now this idea, which has been endorsed by Buttigieg, it's been endorsed by Sanders, it's been endorsed by uh, uh, Warren, this is now part of a national bill to make the whole country into a place where everybody basically has to work for somebody else as an employee. So we're talking about anti-workerism disguised as workerism, pro-workerism. Um, but it's really, it seems more designed to, let's create conditions where we can control the workers. And, you know, to see this, not work so well in California. I mean, at the very least, a lot of screen. I mean, if, if you ignore what, you know, we're all capitalists or something or running dogs, you know, if you ignore all the howling from people, you know, maybe it'll work out down the road, but they're not waiting to see if we do something one place and it's causing a lot of problems, let's spread it as quickly as possible everywhere else. So, but um, I thought it was, we had a real interesting comment from uh, Thomas Knapp, who, who uh, Tom Knapp, who, as I know him, and uh, uh, who comments often and often disagrees, often agrees, you know, it's kind of split, but, uh, but it has interesting things to say, even when I disagree with it. So, but here he says, it's odd that these so-called socialists would have trouble with the gig economy which is my first thought too. Here's, here's an economy where people are working together, cooperating. He goes on, worker control of the means of production is the traditional definition of socialism. And in essence, now they might, they might quibble. They might say, if you're working for Uber, they really control the means of production because the app is somehow the means of production. But of course, you know, I've, I've taken a few Ubers. The people driving sure seem to like to be driving. I sure like them driving me. I mean, I always like cab rides. You know, I'm one of these guys who likes to talk to the cab driver and so on. You know, the, the wisdom of the world is exchanged there. But, you know, I like it cheaper. And it seems like uh, the, what the gig economy is doing is giving people a tremendous amount of freedom to, as workers, and then giving customers lower prices and actually better choices. I mean, the, the, the cars I've ridden in in Uber, I don't think I've ever taken a lift, but it, all the Uber cars are nicer than cabs I've ever ridden in. You know, so anyway, it's, it, it's interesting. But someone had, I said, you know, Tom <laughs> made a good point, but uh, someone took issue and that someone was you, Mr. Verkula, and... Uh, and I think you had a good point. 
And you started out by saying, but socialism was never about what socialists said it was about. Would you care to elaborate? First, go to Karl Marx. He hated the country life, so he wasn't very fond of agriculture work. And is there any uh, coincidence that uh, the Ukraine was and the Kulaks were just liquidated by the Soviets? They were treated so very badly. They were the workers. They were family-owned businesses all over the, all over the Ukraine, and they were. It was just a huge program of murder uh, and starvation, and it was just awful. It was which just a, a, which you know I've I've read quite a bit about Cambodia under Pol Pot. And, you know, starvation is not a fun way to go as, as torture and death you know, run. Starvation isn't it, uh, you know, isn't anything you want. My point is just, it's just interesting that Marx didn't care for agriculture and he didn't care for professionals. Because, you know, professionals, not only are they not employed by the capitalists exactly, they're, they contract out individually one by one, and they're the almost the paradigmatic free enterprisers. And socialists don't like that. They have a problem with those kinds of people. They can't confront it. And many of these people are those kind of people. That's the weird thing about, you know, socialists today. Many of them are professionals, but they don't, they have a real weird relationship because they want the state to take charge. And for them, the workers, you know, the worker controls the mean of production. And really it's just an excuse for the state to take control. Because when it comes down to the worker actually in a real way having more control over their workplace versus bureaucrats ordered around by politicians in a system that almost all these people, you know, think is, I think, more corrupt than I think. And just in the sense that they're always talking about the corruption. And, and I think that there is a lot of corruption, but I, I don't quite see it in the same way they do. It's always, you know, they're going to spend money. They're going to do this or that, but, when you think about, you know, it's always been kind of strange that that socialist march with the state's going to wither away, but you're building this huge, massive state that's somehow going to wither away. And here it's the workers are going to control the workplace, but my goodness, we can't have the workers control the workplace. It has to be controlled by politicians and bureaucrats and party functionaries because the workers could never effectively, I mean, I think this is the unspoken. The workers are not smart enough somehow to control the workplace. We talked last week about uh, Colorado, where the guy came up with an app to, to get people to the mountain and back, cheaper and easier and less tra miles traveled, less gas burned, everything good. And the government shut it down. Um, you know, this, uh, we're here from the government, we're here to help. It's not helping. And, um, and when you can prove that it helps people, they're going to be snatching that idea out of your hands, Mr. Politician. But until then, no thanks. And, and this, uh, this is, is anti, you know, it, it years ago, uh, what was his name? Paul Songus, Massachusetts Senator, Democrat ran against Bill Clinton and ran as like a sensible pro-market Democrat and made the point that you can't say you're pro-labor and be anti-business because without business, there is no labor. And, and so, it, which makes absolute sense. But, you know, he, boy, we could use him saying that again today. I think the socialists don't have a, they don't like the gig economy on some level, many of them. 
because once again, it distracts everybody from government, their solution. And it's not a government solution. And that's, and uh, I think I made this point last week too, with the, with the Colorado thing is that here we have a new element of life, the, the, the communications revolution and the internet that's finding ways of getting the people to cooperate. And cooperation is one of the things that socialism is all right. about. And it's doing it better than the government can do it. And so the government cracks down. And I just wonder if it's just not kind of jealousy. It's not, it's not our gig. Their gig is big government. People out here would just want to cooperate and get ahead. Right. They don't get the credit, for one. Right. Politically, it's very, I think it's very scary to politicians who, you know, in almost every big city, there's always these deals between the taxi companies and, you know, what's in a quarter million dollars to get one of the taxi medallion to be able to drive in New York City. And there's all kinds of political patronage and stuff. All of a sudden, if it's all happening online, you don't even see it. And people are, are not um, protesting that, boy, those taxi cabs are, are expensive. Instead, they're doing their own thing and they're getting there a different way. Boy, it's got to be scary. And, uh, and boy, those are people who need to be scared. So good. Now, the, the end of the week was a return to speech. As I mentioned early on, if you think that what we need to protect our freedom and way of life and prosperity is to better police what people say, on the internet, in social media, on the street, in political discourse, if the government is not policing our speech enough, then there's, there are solutions. Vote for Senator Elizabeth Warren, because she's promising to police our speech and to go after people if they spread misinformation, disinformation, information that Elizabeth Warren, if she was president, wouldn't like and wouldn't think was true. So what the next step is, you've got to have a truth ministry. And let's call it that. Just so, just so no one's confused. So if Orwell comes back to life, yeah. he just knows exactly where to go, you know. I think it would be called the CIA, but that's, that's just my opinion. <laughs> Well, they're busy. They've got a lot of regimes to topple. Let's not lay too many things on them. And, and, and look, is it really a good thing if we can't have a whole new federal agency? So that's why I think we should have a separate. And this way, when they get a consensus on some sort of intelligence, there can be 18 groups, 18 intelligence agencies who have all agreed we need a ministry of truth. She's, she is looking at Facebook and Twitter and Google. And, and I admit, I'm, I'm scared of these folks. Um, now, I think the marketplace has enough entry that, that even though I think Google leans far to the left, I worry about them cooperating too much with the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party in China, uh, and helping you know stop freedom from breaking out there. Uh, Twitter, uh, I think their different policies and stuff are, are horrendous. Facebook, I'm, I've got complaints and stuff. But the last thing we need is the government to get involved and start policing these, these 
means of communications that are very, very important. I mean, the whole idea behind the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law regulating speech. That the whole point is for them to not, it didn't say other people couldn't. In fact, at the time before the 14th Amendment, didn't even say the states couldn't, but certainly not the Congress. And now where power has gone so much to the Congress, it's even more that they shouldn't be able to consolidate it by telling people what they can say and not say. We already live in a country where even though that's what the First Amendment says, they still require certain disclosures if you mention the name of a candidate for federal office. I mean, just that, that legal lease is a smack in the face to anybody who realizes the history of freedom of speech. So to think that she's coming up with this new plan for yet another government uh, agency or government you know, project that you know, this time maybe doesn't cost as much money, but does you know, cause you to worry about what you might say online and whether the government would like it or not. I mean, this is the, this flips the whole script to America. When you think about democratic processes, you know, there are other countries that have democratic processes. Uh, there are countries that have more initiative and referendum, direct democracy than the United States. Uh, my, my fondness for the island nation of Taiwan is partly because they have that at the national level and local level and, you know, and that's exciting to see. But the one thing that America has that no one else has quite to the same degree is this commitment to freedom of speech and this willingness to allow people to say almost anything that isn't going, you know, that isn't a threat that's going to immediately cause, you know, a conflagration. Um, and that is unique to America and it is essential. It is what we, it's, if I think of what has America offered the world that it otherwise wouldn't have in the same way, that is it. And it is the best thing. It's not just that we, it's, it's our gift to the world. It's the best gift anybody's ever got. It's the best gift anyone has ever got. And so Warren, uh, boy, uh, she has, has faded. And so we, as I mentioned in the commentary, um, you know, maybe nobody's paying attention. Uh, maybe that's the good side of it, but we, you know, we flipped and then talked a little bit about Peter, which I thought was interesting too. You know, we're coming up on Sunday will be uh, Groundhog Day. And Peter was able to get uh, what seemed like a Babylon Bee type headline and story uh, about their suggestion. They wrote to the, the folks uh, who do, uh, you know, the Groundhog, Puxel County Phil. And, and so they say, look, don't use a real groundhog. It's time for him to retire. I don't know if it's like, it's like the uh, chimpanzees that they did medical research on, who years ago we wrote a thing because they were getting more in retirement. The chimpanzees were costing more in retirement than, than people were getting on Social Security. And so it was kind of an interesting little thing. But here they're saying, no, it's time for him to retire. I don't know what kind of pension the, the uh, groundhog has. 
and instead use an animatronic groundhog, which by having AI would somehow be able to replicate whatever ridiculous stuff, you know, I don't know if anyone's broken into PETA, but we don't really need, whether the, the groundhog sees its shadow or doesn't, I'm just putting it out there. I don't think it really has any impact on how much longer the winter's gonna go. But they think we've gotta get an AI animatronic fill, uh, the groundhog to, to, uh, to do that. So we suggested maybe, uh, maybe Warren should, should kind of fine tune her proposal to make animatronic citizens. Hope the groundhog doesn't see a shadow, right? Or does. Either way, just hope that the winter ends and that the real or animatronic uh, groundhog uh, has a good day. I guess I should mention as we sign off that you can find this podcast on YouTube and as an audio podcast on SoundCloud and other venues. And if you're looking for me, I'm at Workman. That's Workman with an I, and I don't know, on most social media. Thanks for uh, stopping by. Thank you.